Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli Evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London, to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life and death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History and the latest in our series of walks across the battlefields of the Great War. This is the third of a number of walks I've done over the last couple of months and they've been very, very well received. So thank you to everyone who sent me feedback just telling me how much you're enjoying hearing these accounts of walking across the battlefields. I think like you, we're all in the same boat and we're all getting a little uh, stir-crazy, stuck at home, not being able to go out and visit battlefields and walk this ground. And so my feeling really is that if we can't be out there actually walking the battlefields in the footsteps of the Anzacs, well, let's do it virtually together. And so go back through the podcast and, and look out for those other walks if you haven't listened to them. We've done Gallipoli, uh, we've done the town of Ypres in Belgium, and today we're going back to Belgium again. We're going to probably one of the most famous battlefields of the entire First World War. It's the Battlefield of Passchendaele. The name itself conjures up so many emotive images of the absolute horror of the First World War. And today it's changed quite a lot. The Battle of Passchendaele was fought in October 1917 as part of the Third Battle of Ypres, this huge British and, and Allied effort to break through, to break out of the Ypres salient and to capture the ground held by the Germans for so many years. And the pivotal moment in the Third Battle of Ypres was in October when Australian, New Zealand, some British and eventually Canadian troops captured the village of Passchendaele. The village itself was not particularly important. There was nothing strategically important about the village except it occupied the high ground. 
and in the flat lands of Flanders, the high ground meant everything, as indeed it did throughout the First World War. So the Germans held the high ground on the Passchendaele Ridge, and in order to break out of the Ypres salient, that ground had to be taken. So in October 1917, Australian troops, British troops, New Zealanders, and eventually Canadians who came in later on, would capture that village of Passchendaele, and in doing so would suffer some of the most horrendous circumstances and indeed some of the highest casualties of the entire First World War. And so before the Battle of Passchendaele in early October, the Australians launched several attacks. In fact, they'd been launching attacks as part of the Third Battle of Ypres since September. And on the 4th of October, before the Battle of Passchendaele began, they captured an area which is today the site of Tynecott Cemetery. Tynecott Cemetery is the largest Commonwealth cemetery in the world, and it's where our tour begins and ends. And so I thought it was important to talk a little bit about Tynecott Cemetery and how it, how it looked during the First World War and how it came to be in Australian hands before the Battle of Passchendaele. Now, I should say about this that Tynecott is massive. It's the world's largest Commonwealth military cemetery. There is so much to see in Tynecott that I'm not, I'm not going to dig too deeply into it in this podcast. But what I would say is a dear friend and colleague of mine, Paul Reed has a wonderful podcast series called The Old Front Line, and he did a dedicated episode dedicated just to exploring Tynecott Cemetery. So if you want to learn more about Tynecott Cemetery, then certainly go and listen to that episode from Paul Reed on The Old Front Line, where he tells the full story of Tynecott. But we're going to talk a little bit about it today, give you an overview of Tynecott Cemetery. And so as you're standing there, we're standing now looking out over the, the, the fields of Flanders, Belgian Flanders, it's fairly flat country, but as you can see, standing where we are outside Tynecott Cemetery, there is a gentle slope that leads all the way from the spires of Ypres, which you can see in the distance. Now, today it's beautiful country. It's beautiful green farmland. There's cattle grazing on the rich grass. If you're there in, when the weather is fine, the sun shines down. It's hot in the summer. It's cool in the winter, but in spring and autumn, it's an absolutely beautiful place to be. And it looks nothing like it would have looked in 1917 when this was a wasteland, an absolute moonscape of craters, trees blasted to oblivion, mud, barbed wire, trenches, and concrete pillboxes that the Germans had built as part of a strategy of defence in depth. They'd realised from their fighting in the Somme in 1916 that a system of solid, rigid trench lines was very difficult to defend. So in Flanders in 1917, they'd adopted a, a system called defence in depth. And that basically meant mutually supportive pillboxes, large concrete fortifications that machine gun crews and other troops could hide in and could shelter in while an artillery barrage swept over them. And as soon as the barrage passed, they could rush out of these concrete blockhouses, set up their machine guns in the trenches or on top of the blockhouse and take on any troops who are following up behind this barrage. So remember that when you visit this battlefield, when you walk the battlefield of Passchendaele, remember not just the mud and the blood and the death and the gas and the stench, but remember that what they were fighting against was not Germans in fixed trench positions, but often these these strong points, these concrete pillboxes, which would hold up an entire battalion until they were rushed. So it was a very horrific type of fighting. Imagine men under machine gun fire from several machine guns, and these pillboxes were mutually supporting. There, there could be five or six or a dozen or 20 pillboxes all grouped together, with machine gun crews blasting away at you. So imagine machine gun bullets coming in from every angle, losing mates all around you, and then having to rush these positions, having to charge forward. Usually what the Australians and the British troops would do is fire their Lewis guns, their light machine guns, to hopefully pin down 
the German machine gunners, they would use rifle grenades, which is a hand grenade that's fired with a blank round from a rifle, which could then fly much further than a man could throw it. So they'd use rifle grenades and Lewis guns to pin down the German defenders, and then teams, assault teams, would rush around and try to get behind the pillbox. But as you can imagine, casualties were always very, very high in this type of attack. And often what would happen is as they approached the pillbox, as the German defenders realised that they were about to be overrun, they would give up the fight and throw their hands in the air and stop fighting and try to surrender. But as could be expected, the Australians and the, the troops attacking in the situation, having just seen all their mates mown down, their blood was up from the, the, the ferocity of this assault. As you can imagine, they often didn't take prisoners. And it wasn't considered particularly sporting that the Germans would mow down dozens of men with their machine guns. And then as soon as they realised that the tables had turned, they would throw up their arms and surrender. So I guess the point I'm trying to get across is this was warfare at its most savage, hand-to-hand fighting just the horror of this type of fighting in the mud, the barbed wire, the shell craters. This was horrific fighting throughout October and November 1917. So spare a thought for the hundreds of men who still lie missing beneath these fields. Thousands of men, in fact, whose bodies were never recovered and still remain there today. So I want to give you an impression of of what this area was like when the Australians arrived in early October. So the, the area that is now Tynecott Cemetery was captured by the Australian 40th Battalion on the 4th of October 1917 during the Battle of Broodseend Ridge. And here is how it's described in the official history of the 40th Battalion. On the top of the ridge, the trench system and line of pillboxes along it seemed alive with men and machine guns, and heavy fire was also coming from Bellevue Spur in front of the New Zealanders. The only possible way to advance was from shell hole to shell hole by short rushes. To add to our difficulties... There was a thick belt of wire immediately in front of us, which had very few gaps in it. On these gaps, the enemy had trained machine guns, and we dribbled through in ones and twos, but dead and wounded remained in each gap. Casualties were very heavy. Just imagine that scene. I mean, that's so well described there, and just imagine that scene. It tells us a couple of things. They said that the ridgetop was alive with men and machine guns, and so imagine these German pillboxes, these brooding concrete structures right on the skyline, seeming to look down on every move that you made. Men with machine guns, troops firing their rifles from around the pillboxes, and then you're ordered to go in and attack against that position. And as, as they said in that description, by running from shell hole to shell hole was the only shelter that the men had. The other thing that I think is interesting there is the barbed wire. Now, barbed wire wasn't just to prevent prevent you from reaching the enemy. Barbed wire was also put in key locations to funnel men in a specific direction. So the Germans did this very, very well on the Passchendaele Ridge, where they would put barbed wire entanglements in specific places to funnel the attacking troops into very narrow gaps that they left in the barbed wire. And of course, on those gaps, that's where they'd aimed their machine guns. So the Australians were forced to rush through these gaps in the barbed wire, knowing that that small gap was going to be absolutely riddled with machine gun bullets. And men fell all around them as they made these rushes, as they rushed from shell hole to shell hole. And the only way to take these positions was to charge and capture them. And as they did as they did this, as they moved forward to the area that is now Tynecott Cemetery, on their left was a place called Hamburg Farm where there were several pillboxes and uh, a young bloke called Lewis McGee charged forward with a pistol and killed several gun crews and captured that entire area, which enabled the advance to continue. And so Lewis McGee, for that action, was awarded the Victoria Cross. So quite a heroic action. And Lewis McGee will join us uh, in this story again a little bit later on. And so as we stand in front of Tynecott Cemetery, if you stand in front of the cemetery with your back to the cemetery and look out across the fields back towards Ypres, 
those fields in front of you, as serene and beautiful as they are today, were the killing fields of the Battle of Broodseed Ridge and Passchendaele. So I always, when I take people to Tynecott Cemetery, I always like to stand on the road in front of the cemetery and just look across these fields. And they, they look like beautiful farm fields. It looks like you're in the, the Southern Highlands or, or, the, or Margaret River area of Western Australia. It's just a beautiful area. Just farmland, grazing cows, peaceful, serene. And then you've got to cast your mind back to this hell on earth that took place in front of us. Men inching forward against machine gun fire and dying in their hundreds. Just a scene of, of horror. Now, it brings us to Tynecott Cemetery. Tynecott Cemetery was captured during the advance I just described. So the, the pillboxes on the skyline that I described were where Tynecott Cemetery now now is. Uh, the layout of Tynecott Cemetery has changed in recent years. It used to be that you drive and park out the front of the cemetery and walk through the gates as the designers intended and as thousands and thousands of veterans and pilgrims had done over the years. But in the last 10 years or so, due to the huge increase in numbers of visitors coming to Tynecott, which is probably the most visited site on the entire Western Front. They've had to do a little bit of restructuring in order to accommodate the visitors. So they built a large car park behind the cemetery. And now the way to access the cemetery is down a side road past uh, an interpretation centre and you walk down a side track down to the front of the cemetery. Now, the interpretive centre is a bit of a funny one. Basically, it's it, it can be quite moving. They, they, they project images of faces of the men who are buried in the cemetery and a rather a rather somber voice female voice recounts the names of men buried in the cemetery and their ages um i don't actually think the interpretive center is particularly um important to visit when you're at tynecott cemetery but if you want to visit it i would suggest visit the cemetery first and then come back to the interpretive center after you visited so we're going to leave the car park and walk down the side path down the right hand side of tynecott cemetery then we're going to swing around and come in the front gate and walk in the front gate And as you come in, you see the nearly 12,000 headstones laid out before you, making this the largest Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery anywhere in the world. And it's a a breathtaking place. People that come there, often this is the first sight that people see on the battlefields of the Western Front. And it is literally breathtaking. It, It does take your breath away, the scale. And people always ask me, why is it important to visit battlefields? What is the one thing you take away from it that you can't get from reading a book? or watching a documentary, or listening to a podcast. What I always say to them is the scale. When you stand in these cemeteries and you think about each of these headstones means a lost man and a devastated family, and then you just, as far as your eye can see across this huge expanse of ground, there's an entire hillside of dead lying in front of you. It's it's impossible to process. It's overwhelming. You can't get your head around what you're looking at and what it means and so much grief. Uh, but... Places like Tynecott are where you must stand and gain some understanding of just the the horrors of the First World War. Key features of the cemetery when you stand at the front, uh, the most noticeable thing is two large German pillboxes at the front on the left and the right. They were known as Irksome and the Barnacle. That was what they were dubbed because they were so difficult to capture. And these pillboxes were taken by the Australians during that advance that I described on October 4. 1917. So the whole of Tynecott Cemetery is really an Australian battlefield. It's not just a cemetery. This is also ground fought over at huge cost by the Australians on the 4th of October 1917. And so there's actually five pillboxes that still remain in the structure of Tynecott Cemetery. There's the two at the front, Irksum and the Barnacle. Under the Cross of Sacrifice, right in the middle, is actually a very large German pillbox that, at the suggestion of King George V, the Cross of Sacrifice was built on top of. 
And then at the back, underneath the pillars that support the wall, there are actually two more pillboxes there. So in this relatively small space of ground, you can see five pillboxes providing support to one another. Uh, and there were dozens more along this ridgeline in October 1917. So as I said, if you want to know about Tynecott in detail, listen to Paul Reed's episode from The Old Front Line uh, about his visit to Tynecott because he, uh, he gives a wonderful description of, of all the intricacies of the cemetery. But while we're here, a couple of things we're going to look at. So certainly go and look at the Cross of Sacrifice and the, the, there's, a, there's a wreath on the front and through that, through that wreath, through the gap in the wreath, you can see the remains of the concrete. There's a sign uh, demonstrating how it was captured by the Australians on the 4th of October. Now, one thing that's a little bit controversial about Tynecott uh, is when I take groups there, what I say to people is climb up on the Cross of Sacrifice, stand up, and look out across the sweep of the battlefields. When you stand on this high point, you can see why high ground was so important. And when we're standing on the Cross of Sacrifice, we're actually only a metre or so higher than the Germans would have been on top of that pillbox that, uh, that the Cross is built on top of. So it gives you a real German's eye perspective of what the Germans could see, and you can see all the way back to the town of Ypres. It's really quite extraordinary in land that seems otherwise flat how important this very slight ridge is and what a huge advantage it gave to the Germans when they occupied it. You also get a sweep across the killing fields of the Battle of Broodseend Ridge and Passchendaele in October 1917. Now, what I'm describing is a little bit controversial because I don't think I've been up on top of the Cross of Sacrifice when someone walking past hasn't said to me, hey, get down from there, you can't climb on a memorial. I have to point out to them that there are steps built in to the Cross of Sacrifice and at the top is a bench. This, this was the intention of the veterans and the designers of the cemetery. Their intention was they wanted people to climb up on the cross and to look out across the entire cemetery and across the battlefield where these men had sacrificed their lives. And so don't feel bad about climbing up on the cross of sacrifice. It's what the original designers of the cemetery wanted. And I do have to say, I think in recent years, we're getting a little bit too precious. Of course we remember, of course we respect these men, but we don't want to get too precious about it and start putting it in glass boxes and saying it's something that can't be touched. This is living history. The idea is we're supposed to engage with this history. We don't know these men anymore, of course. They're all gone, but we want to engage with them as much as we can. We want to understand what they went through. And the men who are here and the designers of the cemetery wanted us to climb up and look out on the battlefields. So feel free to do that. It's, uh, it's quite a breathtaking view. So some information about Tynecott. As I said, there's nearly 12,000 graves in the cemetery and as you stand on the cross of sacrifice you can look out on those and just take in the sheer number this in terms of australian contribution there are more australians buried here than any other cemetery from the first world war in fact there's only one other war cemetery anywhere on the planet that has more australians than this one and that's bamana cemetery in papua new guinea from the second world war but of course bamana cemetery was created when bodies were brought in from all over new guinea so Tynecott was created from men who were killed in the fields around where you're standing. And so it's really quite a, quite a, breathtaking, quite a breathtaking sight. So there's 1,368 Australians buried here. So a very large number of Australians. So really one in, more than one in 10 of the graves you see here are Australians. And some of the plots contain mostly Australian graves. So if you're an Australian listening to this, it's a great tribute to the Aussies who came here and fought, particularly in October 1917. If you're British, if you're a New Zealander, Canadian... Anyone else who may be listening then, uh, of course, there are you know wonderful testaments to, to fighting men from your countries as well. This is a cross-section of the entire Allied contribution to the First World War. For our American listeners, there's also American men buried in the cemetery as well who were serving with the Canadians. Not serving with American forces, but American men who, particularly early in the war, 
didn't like the fact that America remained neutral, and so they crossed the border to Canada and joined Canadian units and then were killed fighting with the Canadians. So you're going to see men across the entire spectrum here from privates to brigadier generals are buried in this cemetery. There's three Victoria Cross winners buried here and men killed in every facet of fighting in this area. The interesting thing about this cemetery is that the Cross of Sacrifice is built on top of that German pillbox. That pillbox was then used as an aid post in later fighting and by the British, once they'd captured it, they used it as an aid post and men who were killed in the area were buried and a small cemetery was created near around that uh, that German pillbox. And that's the that's plot one today. And you can still see that when you look at the graves laid out in a higgledy-piggledy nature at the base of the Cross of Sacrifice, you can see that original wartime cemetery. And so the fascinating thing about it is that at the end of the First World War, the Tynecott Cemetery was just that original plot, just those graves in that immediate area of the Cross of Sacrifice. And there was only 343 graves at the end of the First World War. What then happened is because Tynecott was located in a very easy place to get to, it was quite central to the battlefields, they brought in isolated graves and small cemeteries and men, random bodies, men who'd been buried in the fields, men who'd been buried in small groups or just individually, in fact, even bodies that were still just lying out in the fields in the, 19, in the early 1920s. And so by 1922, Tynecott had reached its current size of 11,953 graves. That just shows how many men were brought in, and the vast majority of those are unknown. That's the nature of the fighting in the Ypres salient, and probably compared to the Somme, it's, it's slightly different. In the Ypres salient, the nature of the fighting was that, uh, or the nature of the fighting and the way that the cemeteries were built after the war reflects that there were so many random bodies brought in uh, to Tynecott Cemetery after the war. So in Ypres, you see a lot of these large concentration cemeteries where bodies were brought in from the surrounding fields and laid to rest in the original cemetery. So just imagine that, 343 graves at the end of the war, and now there's 11,953. So spend some time wandering around Tynecott Cemetery. Two graves to visit are the graves of Captain Clarence Jeffries, who is uh, in front of the pillbox as you stand on the Cross of Sacrifice, the pillbox on the left, just in front of that is the grave of, Car- of Clarence of Captain Clarence Jeffries, who was killed during the attack on uh, on Passchendaele in October 1917, and he is buried there. Uh, and he won the Victoria Cross during that uh, during that action by capturing German machine gun positions. And we're going to visit the sites of his bravery later in the tour. So he's buried there. He didn't capture the pillbox that he's buried in front of. That's a common misconception. He captured one or several, a little bit further on. Uh, And also, his body was not discovered until 1922. His father had actually come out. After he'd been killed, he was buried. In 1920, his father came out in an attempt to try and find his body, but was unsuccessful. But then in 1922, his body, a body of a captain, an Australian captain, was discovered uh, wrapped in a ground sheet. And the initials written on the ground sheet indicated that this was Clarence Jeffries. And so Clarence Jeffries, Victoria Cross winner, is buried in that grave. Also buried nearby in a plot on the other side of the cemetery is Lewis McGee that we described capturing the pillboxes at Hamburg Farm earlier in the episode. And Lewis McGee was awarded the Victoria Cross for his action in capturing those pillboxes on the 4th of October, but he had not found out about the award when he was killed on the 12th of October in the field just to the left of Tynecott Cemetery. So that was a field called Augustus. There was a place called Augustus Wood there, and he was killed along with many other members of the 40th Battalion. And so Lewis McGee VC is also buried there. There's a British VC winner buried in the cemetery as well. There's literally thousands of fascinating graves. So take some time to wander the graves. 
There's a grave I always like to visit here in Tynecott Cemetery, which has a link to my hometown in West Wylong, New South Wales. And this is a great example of a, of, of just a, a common soldier with an uncommon story. Uh, there's a grave of uh, John Crowley of the 34th Battalion, who was killed on the 12th of October, as so many of his comrades were. And John Crowley was the editor of the Wylong Star newspaper in West Wylong, my hometown. And he was 52 when he enlisted and he gave a, a moving speech in West Wylong. In the main street of West Wylong, the town gathered and he gave a moving speech saying he would rather sleep the long sleep in the cold earth of France than shirk his responsibilities. So he enlisted. I have no idea how they accepted him uh, at age 52. He was way too old to be accepted into the forces and everyone would have known him in the district and known how old he was. But So I have no idea how he was actually accepted. But he was. And he joined the ranks. He joined as a private and off he went to war in the 34th Battalion. And now the Crowley family is known as the Fighting Crowleys of West Wylong because several members of the family uh, also joined up. So his brother Matthew had also uh, joined up early in the war and Matthew had been had died of wounds at Gallipoli in 1915. And three of John's sons also joined up with him. So John Jr., Ozzy and the youngest boy who was Reg, and Reg was only 16 and so needed special permission to join and so off they all went away to war. And so Matthew, as I said, his brother was killed at Gallipoli. And then John, the father, was killed in Passchendaele in 1917. And then Reg, the youngest boy, in 1918, by this stage he was 18, was killed in France under terrible circumstances. It was an attack near the village of Villers Bretonneau. And the story was that he attacked a German trench along with his comrades and there was a German officer who was wounded in the trench and that Reg was going to bayonet the German officer but the officer put his hand up and begged for mercy so Reg hesitated and then the officer pulled out a pistol and shot Reg twice in the stomach and killed him. Um, so that was a horrific story and then uh, the Australians said that they took revenge on the on the German officer and his mother wouldn't have recognised him by the time they were finished with him. So just those these unbelievable brutal stories that, that you just hear about about war. So Reg Crowley has no known grave and is remembered on the Australian Memorial at Villas Bretonneau. And so that was the Crowley. So Ozzy and John, the two other sons that were fighting, both survived the war and, and went back to West Wylong. But three of the five Crowleys from West Wylong were killed during the war. And, uh, and so visit the grave of Private John Crowley of the 34th Battalion while you're here in Tynecott. Well, as I said, there's a lot to see in Tynecott. We should get on with the rest of the uh, the rest of the tour. The other thing I should mention about Tynecott Cemetery is at the back of the cemetery is a huge memorial wall with 35,000 names on it of British and Commonwealth soldiers. And these are names that would not fit on the Menin Gate. We talked in our walk around Ypres about the Menin Gate Memorial to the Missing where there's 54,000 names. Well, all the names of the missing from the salient would not fit on the Menin Gate Memorial. And so 35,000 were added to the to the wall at the back of Tynecott when this was made a permanent cemetery in the early 1920s. So most of these men were killed in the Third Battle of Ypres and onwards. So British men killed uh, from the, mid, mid, the middle of 1917 onwards uh, are recorded here on, uh, at, on the, wall, on the uh, memorial wall at Tynecott Cemetery. So we're going to leave Tynecott Cemetery now. If you're at the back of the car park, come out and walk down the road or leave by the front entrance and turn left. We're going to walk a little way and we're going to come to a, 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 just looks like a path with, with trees on either side and banks. And there's a small sign announcing that this is a memorial walk uh, to Passchendaele, an Australian walk to Passchendaele. And this track actually leads all the way from the village of Zonnebeck, where there's a wonderful museum, the, the, the Passchendaele 1917 Museum. And this leads all the way to Passchendaele. 
And this is actually the remains of an old railway. It was the Ypres uh, Roulet Railway, which was a feature during the First World War. Trains didn't run along it, of course, during the war, but the, the railway embankment and the railway cutting was a was a major feature of the battlefield and provided one of the few areas on the battlefields where men could take shelter. And very interestingly, this is the scene of a, a really important part of Australian military history. So if you're standing there now at this embankment, walk along the track, walk up along the into the railway cutting for only a couple of hundred metres. And you'll come to a spot where you'll see the remains of some railway tracks uh, on the, beside the path. And this is a, the remnants of the original railway that ran through here. But as you're standing in that spot, you're standing on the scene of one of the most famous Australian war photographs ever taken. Frank Hurley was an official photographer for the Australians. And he came up here behind the troops after the attack on the 12th of October. Now, by this stage, the Australian troops had been repulsed. They tried to attack Passchendaele Village. The attack broke down in a sea of mud and shell craters. The artillery couldn't support them adequately. Thousands of men were killed by machine gun and artillery fire, and eventually the Australians had to retreat. And as they pulled back, they looked for places they could shelter from the German artillery fire. And many men, particularly wounded men, men who'd been separated from their units, sheltered in this railway embankment. And Frank Hurley took a very famous photograph of these men sheltering in the embankment. Uh, and I'll, I'll post it on the Facebook page so that you can see the the photograph that I'm talking about, but I'm sure you've already seen it. It's one of the most famous Australian photographs in the history of warfare. And so it shows Australians cowering in this bank after the horror of what they'd been through that morning. And a couple of them are dead. And we don't know whether those men were killed there or whether they'd been wounded and died there. There's the badly disfigured corpse of a German soldier lying in the foreground who'd been killed probably in the preliminary bombardment during the Battle of Passchendaele, just a scene of living hell. And this is how Frank Hurley described the scene he was looking at. Under a questionably sheltered bank lay a group of dead men. Sitting by them in little scooped-out recesses sat a few living, but so emaciated by fatigue and shell shock that it was hard to differentiate. Still the hole was just another of the many byways to hell one sees out here, and which are so strewn with ghastliness that the only comment is, poor beggar copped it thick, or else nothing else at all. So just imagine that, he's describing soldiers walking up past this scene of ghastliness with dismembered bodies and, and, and men who died in this spot. And the only comment was that poor beggar copped it thick or else no comment at all. So that's a really interesting sight. So spend a few moments there, soak in the atmosphere, then head back to Tynecott Cemetery and then walk past Tynecott Cemetery, past the car park, and we're going to walk along the ridge top. As we go along, what I suggest you do is get a copy of my book, Walking with the Anzacs. I describe several sites of German strong points that were here. So as you walk past farmhouses, Imagine that these were fortified farmhouses during the war. The, the, the buildings themselves had been destroyed, but the Germans would often turn the cellars into fortifications. They'd build concrete pillboxes to, to form machine gun positions. And each one of these had to be captured by the Australians as they advanced forward. And as we go, we're going to cross the Passchendaele Road, and there's a grass path that leads down to a memorial. And this is a memorial to the 85th Canadian Infantry Battalion. And it was a memorial that was put there in 1919 by the survivors of the battalion. This one replaced it in the late 90s because it was it was falling into disrepair. So in the late 90s, they replaced it with this, this, this replica memorial. Um, but again, it's a wonderful spot to stand and just look out across the, the killing fields of Passchendaele. And now the Canadians came in after the Australians were repulsed. So the Australians attacked on the 12th of October. They could not capture the village. And so the Canadians came in and took over. And this is a memorial that marks where their headquarters were. But as you stand on the side of this headquarters, as a Canadian, this is where the advance began towards 
the village of Passchendaele, which was ultimately successful later in November. But if you're an Australian, look around these fields because these are the killing fields where so many Australians were killed and wounded during that desperate attempt to advance towards the village of Passchendaele. Literally hundreds of Australians were killed within metres of where you're standing. If you look across to your right, you'll see the railway line that we described earlier in the walk, and there's a, a clump of trees on that. That's the remains of what was known as Decline Cops. And Decline Cops was the site where Clarence Jeffries, one of the sites where Clarence Jeffries, the Victoria Cross winner that we visited in Tynecott Cemetery, where he attacked pillboxes and, and, and performed these heroic action, actions for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. But... At Decline Cops was another German strongpoint he attacked after having already captured several, and the Germans in that pillbox saw the Australians coming. They Clarence Jeffries led a charge towards the pillbox. The Germans swung the machine gun round, opened fire, and Jeffries was killed, but his men completed the capture of that pillbox. And so that's in Decline Cops, just across the field, and Clarence Jeffries was buried nearby and, as I said, not discovered until 1922 when his remains were moved to Tynecott Cemetery. So again, just think about the, the sheer number of men that were killed in these fields all around you. It's really difficult to imagine these days. But I think in some small way, you can feel the presence of so many men who died in this area. What we're going to do now is go back onto the main Passchendaele Road and actually walk into the village of Passchendaele. It's a, it's a long and fairly featureless walk. So uh, there's not a lot to describe in that walk. It takes probably about a kilometre and a half to get into the village. When you get to the village, there's a couple of very interesting things to see. The church in the town was rebuilt. And if you see aerial photos of Passchendaele during the battle, there was nothing to indicate where the village had been. Earlier in the war, you could at least see the roads leading into the village, even though there were no buildings. By 1917, you couldn't even see the roads anymore. They'd been completely destroyed by shellfire. So there was nothing that remained. However, there was a few clumps of rubble that defined where the church had been and one group of Australians actually charged towards the church knowing the church was their objective a very small group only about 10 men or so ducked and weaved and dodged the Germans and actually managed to make it all the way to Passchendaele Church when they got there they looked around and realized that they were hundreds of meters behind the German lines and there were no Australians around so they turned and scampered back down the road you just walked to rejoin the Australian lines so absolutely extraordinary that Australians did actually set foot in the village of Passchendaele on the 12th of October 1917, but not in numbers large enough to hold it. And so it's interesting to go and visit the church. There's a couple of memorial plaques outside the church detailing what went on. As you walk through Passchendaele, take a left and you'll walk down towards a memorial park. And the memorial park down here is dedicated to the Canadians. It commemorates the capture of Passchendaele by the Canadian Corps on the 6th of November. And it's really a beautiful spot there's a memorial in the middle dedicated to the Canadians. It's surrounded by maple trees. It's really a lovely spot to to visit and think about the, the job the Canadians did. And interestingly, it's surrounded by houses now. It's It's become part of the village of Passchendaele, and there's just modern houses surrounding this. And so it's a wonderful demonstration of how time has moved on, yet the elements of the war are still there if we seek them out. As beautiful as the park is today, we should remember that this was a scene of absolute horror during the war. This was the site of Crest Farm, which was a huge blockhouse, which changed hands several times during the battle, and hundreds of Australians and Canadians were killed trying to capture this massive imposing blockhouse. The Germans held it at the end of the Australian attack, and it was not taken until the Canadians came in and swept forward and, and managed to take the ground. If you walk behind the Canadian Memorial, what you'll see is a, a long, sweeping, shallow valley. And this is what's known as the Raverbeek Valley. Beek in Flemish means a little creek. And this was the Raverbeek, which ran across the battlefield. And this is the valley that that little creek ran through. 
And this was a way that the forces, both Australians and Canadians, tried to get to Passchendaele. It's, it provided some shelter on an otherwise featureless, featureless battle, battlefield. But because of that, the Germans had it very well covered. And so imagine you're a German in this position at the Canadian Memorial. You're in a big, a big concrete blockhouse armed with machine guns, and it provided a, a, a horrifying field of fire to any Australians, New Zealanders and Canadians as they tried to come up that valley. Eventually, the Canadians succeeded in capturing Crest Farm and the village of Passchendaele. But this valley in front of you was a scene of absolute horror. Some of the worst hand-to-hand fighting, death, destruction on the entire Passchendaele battlefield occurred in this valley in front of you. So it was absolutely choked with dead by the end of the battle. So we're going to walk from behind the Canadian Memorial. We're going to follow the path down the hill alongside the Ravabeek Valley. And we're going to walk down until we come to a farm uh, on the left. And this farm was known as Waterfields. And it's still known as Waterfields today. There's a sign in front of it announcing it as the farm, Waterfields. And this was, a, 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 again, a site of another fortified German position, which was captured by the Australians on the 12th of October. And interestingly, the, the farm has been rebuilt. And a year or two ago, I was there and went called in and said hello to the farmer. And we were actually making a documentary at the time, and he hosted us for the entire day. We filmed in the fields around that area. The field opposite his farmhouse is actually still quite pitted and and an undulating, which shows the, the damage caused by shell fire during the First World War. But he was a very gracious host and took us around and showed us a few things on the farm. And in his farm shed, he has a huge assortment of material he's just collected from the farm, um, bits of old rifles and unexploded shells. He even has a, a hooked quillion bayonet. And these are a bayonet where with a little hook underneath the blade, which by this stage of the fighting were very rare. They were more common in the early years of the war. Famously, the Australians carried them at Gallipoli, uh, but uh, by later in the war, they uh, they sort of disappeared from usage. But he even has has one of those that he found on the battlefield, which would have been a rare, a rare thing for a soldier to be carrying in 1917. Uh, so just extraordinary the amount of material that's still left over from the war that that is hidden away in farm buildings all over the Ypres salient. So as we leave Waterfields, we continue walking down. In the left, we can look back across to Tynecott Cemetery, and in the field in front of us is where is the site of Augustus Wood. And this was the wood that Lewis McGee, along with hundreds of his comrades, were killed in during the attack on the 12th of October. So Lewis McGee, who'd won the Victoria Cross for attacking Hamburg Farm uh, only a week earlier, is now buried in Tynecott Cemetery. And we visited his grave earlier in the tour. As we come down to the road, the intersection, the T-junction, what we're going to do is not head straight back to Tynecott Cemetery. We're going to turn right and we're going to walk down not not very far at all, just a, a few metres really, until we come to a small brick bridge which crosses a little creek. It looks really like a drainage ditch. And what this actually is, stand on that bridge for a moment, and there's a couple of interesting things to note about that bridge. Firstly, on the other side of the, the little creek that we're standing above, on the left-hand side was where the New Zealanders attacked on the morning of October 12. And indeed, the the whole high ground to, in front of you as, you as you look to your left from this bridge is where the New Zealanders attacked. And so it's a very important ground to the New Zealanders. And a little bit further along this road up on the ridge is actually a memorial to the New Zealanders missing, the Passchendaele Memorial, uh, to the New Zealanders who are missing from the fighting in this area. So this area in front of you to the left of this creek is very much the home of the New Zealanders. But during the attack on the morning of October 12, the New Zealanders were held up by a pillbox or a, several, a series of pillboxes at the farm that you can see right in front of you. Uh, and that farm was known as Lamkik. 
and the pillboxes there were really holding up the New Zealanders and a lot of New Zealanders were dying and, 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 and not making ground against this formidable German position. So a couple of Australians, a handful of Australians, only about half a dozen of them, actually left their lines on the, on the right of the New Zealanders and they snuck across this bridge that you're now standing on or indeed the, the wooden version that, that, that this bridge replaced. But they crossed the creek on this road, crossing this bridge, and they went up and outflanked Lambkeek. And by attacking it from the flank, it enabled the New Zealanders to come forward and complete its capture. And so there's a, there's a nice little joint Anzac effort that took place at that farm immediately in front of you. But what I also want you to do while you stand on that bridge is just look up at that creek. Look up back towards Passchendaele Village. You should just be able to see the church spire on the high ground in the distance. And now you're looking up that Ravabeek Valley that I described from the Canadian Memorial. You're looking along the creek. You're looking back to Passchendaele Village where so many men fought and died in October and November 1917. And as you can imagine, this creek on an otherwise featureless battlefield provided one of the few places where men could shelter. So once the attack was repulsed on October 12 and the men had to start coming back, the wounded men were crawling back. Men were were walking back looking for shelter. They were running back looking for shelter. And this creek became absolutely choked with dead and dying men. The wounded in particular, desperate to get back, desperate to get out of the fire, tumbled down into this creek bed. And sadly, many of them died there. And so as you stand there looking along what is quite a serene scene today, back to Passchendaele Village, just note the numbers of men, the the misery, the, the, the pain, the fear that this creek embodies and just what those men went through in October and November 1917. There's really no better place, I'd say, in the entire salient to stand and just just think about those men and the suffering they went through. It's important that we remember what these men went through, and particularly, sadly, for many hundreds of them in their final moments as they lay in this creek just in front of us. It's it's a very sobering place to stand. I, I you know I, I'm always overwhelmed when I stand in this spot and look back towards Passchendaele and just think about what it means to stand in this spot and to remember those men who fell right where I'm standing, right at my feet. That's, uh, that's our tour of the Pashadale Battlefield. You can then walk a couple of hundred metres back to Tynecott Cemetery where we began, where I assume your car is parked, spend some more time visiting the cemetery, visit the interpretive centre. But above all, just remember these men. It's a century ago now, but it's important we don't forget. And in places like... Passchendaele, like the Ravabeek Valley, like the Canadian Memorial, like Tynecott Cemetery, we can connect with them. The history isn't dead. It's still there if we seek it out. And it's important that we stop and pause and remember these men. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.